And welcome back. We're here with another edition of On Stage, Off Stage. My name is George Sapio, and we are speaking to the eminently talented playwright, director, and teacher, Judd Lear Silverman. Judd's plays have been seen... Uh, get ready, folks, because this is a heck of a bio. Buckle yourselves in. His plays have been seen nationally, as well as in the Edinburgh, London, and Vancouver Fringe Festivals. All right. He's the recipient of a major grant from the Barilla Carer Foundation for Playwriting and is a longtime member of Charles Marion's Playwrights Director's Workshop. His full-length plays include Bindings, Today's Special, Gauguin and the Savages, The Resurrection of David After Tennessee, The Unseen Characters of Tennessee Williams, and Superhero Blues, which had its premiere production at Brooklyn's Gallery Players in 2012. His play, Heart, was a finalist in Sonora, California's Stage 3 Theater Company's Festival of New Plays. It was also a finalist at Dayton Playhouse's Future Fest. Following its presentation at the Last Frontier Theater Conference in Valdez, Alaska, Hart was then fully produced by ACT in Anchorage, Alaska, with an encore performance at the 2010 Last Frontier Theater Conference. His play, Correct Address, is published by Samuel French, and he will soon be represented in the book, Monologues from the Last Frontier Theater Conference, due out in March 2013, and his play, Change of Venue, will be featured in the Best American Short Plays of 2011 to 2012. I'm not done yet. Hang on, folks. As a director, his credits include Evolution and Mass Murder by Edward Musto and Ill Winds by William Dudley, and he also directed Angels in America, as well as Wolf. He's also a teacher. He's taught theater to young people at Brooklyn College, the Calhoun School on Manhattan's Upper West Side, and New York's Harlem Children's Zone, as well as adult playwriting at the Henry Street Settlement Aberrant's Arts Center, where he, for several years, served as program coordinator for theater. He also writes children's books. His book, Eddie Has Allergies, is published by Ernest Silliman Books and Amazon Kindle. He's a founding member of Playwrights for Pets, a group that raises funds for different animal shelter groups with public theater readings, as well as a member of Blue Roses Productions. And when he's not out conquering the theater world one play at a time, Judd teaches writing and literature at the English department at Pace University in New York City. And now while they bring in the oxygen so I can get some breath back, how are you, Judd? Is there time for anything else? No, that's it. Well, thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you stopped by for that. Okay. Um, Let's start off with uh, one of my Baba Wawa questions. How did you know? There There you go. When did you first know you were a playwright? What was the decisive moment? Do you know this? Um, I wanted to do theater since 1966, I think it was, when I saw Herschel Bernardi and Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, what other kid goes around for Halloween dressed as Tevye? The only other one I know is the first grader like me who knew all the lyrics to Fiddler on the Roof, South Pacific, and yada, 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 yada. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, but the writing came about, I think, probably in junior high school. Uh, I remember one of my earliest plays was uh, the New York Times every year around Christmas used to do 100 Neediest Cases. And they would publish all these uh, social work stories. And some reason or other, it was on the front of the arts and leisure section. I don't know why, but that's where they chose to have this column. And I saw a piece about this woman. Uh, who was by herself and she was dependent but she never heard from her kids and somehow or other something about that got me so I decided to write a play about her and her fantasy life and that the characters on the soap operas talked to her and that she had a she kept herself happy by having an artificial friend that she never sat in that one chair and so in seventh grade I had an eighth grader play this 
this woman i built the set i did the whole thing and just created the world of this woman so and people were like responding to it i went this is neat so you didn't just start out as a playwright you started out as a playwright and producer oh yes Oh yeah, it was the whole the whole enchilada, and then I moved on to things like uh, senior of high school. Two friends and I turned Oedipus Rex, or both parts of Oedipus, into a rock opera, <laughs> which I then staged and we produced and and got we got the entire senior class to participate in it and used the senior class funds as the uh, angels or the funders for the production, uh, which. It's still apparently most people's fondest high school memory. I go, oh, with another production for me. And then I found out that it's like, oh, no, Oedipus was so important. I'm going, okay. But, you know, it was just, uh, I would just stumble into these things. It was the best way for me to, to express. Funny thing is, I never thought I was going to really be involved with original work. I always thought, oh, you know, maybe it's because when I was young, I used to see some really awful stuff. I go, no, I'm going to direct classics. I'm going to always invest in that, which is really funny because my directing career has been all new works. And I have no idea why, because I deliberately set out not wanting to do new works. I think what changed that for me was the O'Neill Center. Uh, while I was in college, I did one summer at the uh, the Playwrights Conference at the Eugene O'Neill uh, Theater Center in Waterford. Right, right. And that's totally uh, devoted to uh, to new work. And just watching them shape the plays just became such a fascinating experience for me. And I said, hmm... I, I want to do that. The funny thing is, I still was in denial about writing until I moved to New York in the fall of uh, 1979. Wait, wait. After all this time, you were still in. You weren't a playwright yet in your own mind. No, I was always writing and stuffing them in a drawer. I mean, I was writing all the time. I was writing in, co in college. I was part of a new playwriting class, and was doing. But all the other students were whipping out these plays and showing these plays. And I sort of kept them to myself. And my playwriting teacher actually liked my writing very much and was very supportive. And while all the other kids were rushing to put them on in the workshop theater, I would just sit on them. And every so often he'd run into me. Uh, his name was George, uh, George Bass. And he used to say to me, so are you writing? Why were you hiding your light under a bushel? I have no idea. Uh, but I'd, I'd say, yeah, I'm writing, but I was hiding it. And then what happened was when I moved to New York, I share an apartment with two other theater people who I met once I moved to New York. And they would wonder what the heck it was that I was working on all, all this time. And they'd say, could I read it? And I'd say, mm, all right. And I'd let them read it. And suddenly they were introducing me to other people as their friend Judd, who's a playwright. And it was like, huh? <laughs> well, it's true. When you think about it, you were writing plays and therefore you... Are and were, you know. but I was. It, that was the closet that I really wasn't ready to come out of. I guess you didn't uh, think of yourself in terms of being quote a playwright unquote, or you were just not ready to go public. Uh, a little bit of both, I think. I just didn't. I didn't know if I was ready to step up to the title because I felt like I was supposed to quote know what I was doing. And so much of it was, you know, a lot of what I was doing, I'd, I'd studied directing, I'd studied acting, I'd say, but I'd never studied uh, playwriting formally. I'm sensing that this this theme of self-discovery, of, of realizing who you are, occurs regularly in your work. I know from reading and seeing Superhero Blues that your main character is on such, you know, a journey of... of finding out who he is and what it is that he can do. Um, 
was this sparked by anything in particular, or did this just come about as as, as a result of a theme that you seem to want to explore? Well, I think we end up having to, re in these days, we end up having to reinvent ourselves daily almost just to survive, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I've also long believed the idea that you have to keep searching for the answer of why you're here and what it is you're doing. So if, you know, the minute you find out, it's, you have to keep doing the searching because the minute you think you got the answer and you actually get it right, that's when they kill you. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Thanks. You know, so, so you don't want to find the answer too soon. Um, but I also feel that it's really about enjoying the richness of that exploration. So I actually believe in uh, turning over every rock, stone, uh, shell, on the, pebble on the beach, uh, trying to find out what it's about, what makes what makes us tick, what makes our thoughts tick, tick what's um, what's the richness of it. Uh, that's what you know. I certainly think a playwright is here for is to is to bring that depth of emo emotion of richness to of life uh, to people and to point it out. And you don't do that if you don't get your hands dirty, if you don't keep prodding it with a stick and trying to find out, you know, where is that coming from. So, yeah, so uh, I constantly find myself exploding what should be nice and calm and tranquil, uh, you know, is what I usually am suspicious of. And that's when I have to go and uh, poke around, prod it with a fork and see if it's actually done. Well, I mean, the nature of discovery is, is one of change, and change always upsets the status quo. So things get toppled over and rearranged, and then you have to make sense out of them all over again. In Superhero Blues, your your protagonist believes he has superpowers and in a, I'm, I'm going to just extrapolate here and say that you know it's, this is trying to discover who he really is what his what what his abilities are and who he actually is it's in a sense it's all of our superpowers oh very definitely i mean what he labels superpowers he labels as such because that's what his his mother when he was a little boy trying to cheer him up had told him what he's not realizing is that he's on a journey that all of us are on, that we do have gifts and powers and intuitions. Uh, and we have to find out how they best serve both ourselves and how they serve others, how they connect us to other people. And when you think about all the different uh, trajectories that people take, the idea that we can come together and live with someone, love someone, help someone, the fact that we can never get on board with each other is pretty miraculous. It is a superpower when you think about it. Some days it's definitely super heroic. <laughs> you were listening to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and we are speaking with Judd Lear Silverman. We're talking about superpowers. Judd, what are your superpowers? Uh, willful blindness. <laughs> in what turning, respect and turning, turning a deaf ear to the things I don't want to hear uh, keeping my sunny side up in the in the face of perversity but, but, but isn't being a playwright opening your ears to the things you don't want to hear yes that's why that's why playwrights are such tortured souls <laughs> there's a job to do and you do it despite despite that you go oh god not again don't make me do this but yet on the same token we want to we can't help ourselves we're driven to do it and so um what do you mean we're driven to do it well at the risk of sounding like saint joan we hear voices 
And it's interesting, that's part of uh, one of the things that happens without giving too much away in uh, superhero blues. We hear things. We have a certain sensitivity to uh, ideas, feelings, emotions, thoughts that are either direct or in the zeitgeist that arouses this insatiable curiosity. And like a siren song, we have to go and find out what that's about. And I think we're mostly cheered on because we believe that if we find out what it's about, it's going to help someone. Okay, so you think that what you do or what playwrights do in general is contribute to the public wheel, the, the public benefit? But that we act as harsh mirrors to a, a, a dis, disordered reality? I don't know. It's always dystopic. Um, although I think sometimes it sure as hell can be. Uh, but I think I've always believed that repress repression or hiding things or stifling certain things, be it in your body or in your spirit or in your soul or in society, only causes them to swell and fester. That somehow or other, things that have a natural flow that can breathe that are out there in the open for people to to grapple with is just healthier. It's just healthier than keeping things subterranean. Right. And I think that's really the playwright's job is to, to for, in a sense, for the public mental health, uh, to bring out the things to, to, that we can look at and examine. Uh, and maybe even just take comfort from the fact that we feel or recognize the same problems. Not that we have a solution to them, but to acknowledge that we all have the same problem or the same feelings or the same fears. It doesn't mean we're going to solve them, but certainly it's doing something for humanity if we we acknowledge that we all have them or that we recognize, you know, we recognize the emperor has no clothes. What's your writing process like? How do you fit in writing time? In your head, are you always writing something Probably. Um, I do keep a journal, or I try to keep a journal, which most of these days gets on, done on the subway or while I'm eating lunch, some sort of squirreled away time. So I always try to prime my, my brain and my, my writing brain with something. Uh, but the writing is interesting. There are certain themes that will pop into my head that I'll sit on for a long time. The full-length plays take a long time because I, some of my friends can sit down and write a little bit every day very in a very disciplined fashion. They them. God bless them. Get up at four o'clock in the morning to write. Ouch. Not here. No, well, not here either. Uh, but I respect that. I mean, you know, whatever works for you, it works. Uh, I'm someone who may not write for a long period of time. And then if I get an afternoon and something has been bubbling over in me, I will suddenly sit down and write 30 or 40 pages till I'm written out. And then I might not run, write, write the next 40 pages to finish it until three or four weeks later. It's like I just have to spill it out the first time to get it all out there. Do, do things come out in bulk like that with you? 30, 40 pages? That's a lot. Uh, sometimes, yes, they really do. Uh, it's really, it is odd. Uh, but then No, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, if I can get out five pages of stuff that isn't complete garbage, I'm real happy with myself. Well, part of it is I often say I didn't write it, I just channel it. You know, I just... Yeah. Uh, I know exactly what you mean on yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to just keep my ears to, uh, 
you know, that buzz that's going on around me and uh, try to translate and take, uh, take dictation. I always feel like I'm taking, taking dictation from my characters. In fact, I very rarely do what's traditionally called rewriting. This is not to say I haven't rewritten a million times, but rewriting very often to me or a lot commonly means, oh, you're going to go in and fix or you're going to go in and change. It's rarely that for me. What it is, is I will be writing about my characters as someone I know or as people in my head I, I think I know intrinsically well. And yet, when I hear the play or look at the play, I suddenly go, why are they doing that? And then I'll go, oh, my God, they were keeping a secret from me. And when I find that there was a secret, all the things that didn't connect suddenly have a reason for, for connecting. So it's not that I go and change or rewrite. It's like, oh, okay, they've let me know the answer now, such that then it, it gets fleshed out that much further. So I very rarely change what I've established for the plays. It's just I come to a better understanding of it. Like I say, they're in charge. It's like your characters are revealing themselves slowly to you bit by bit yes. as as live entities almost oh yes oh definitely definitely they are they're the creators and i'm i'm the amanuensis which maybe i just want to say because i love the word amanuensis. No, that, that's a great one say it again amanuensis <laughs> uh, who do you admire as a playwright who are, you, who are your favorites i mean it's kind of a cheesy question but i love asking it Oh, it's always such a difficult one to answer, too. I mean, I'm a big Chekhov fan, always have been, just because of the subtlety, of the the nuance. I mean, who else was brilliant enough to say that plays are about comings and goings and that we always just get ourselves ready to go out to face the world or stay within our comfortable corner with the things we know and familiar with? Who else was a poet of that in such a way that they, you know, they just said, that's where life is, what we're willing to go out and face and what we... Uh, what we feel in our in our own native uh, uh, war, rabbin wart, rab, rabbin, rabbit, rabbit warren. warren. Rabbit warren yes. Say that five times fast. Yes. Well, audience, go. No, they're not doing it. I don't hear them. No, I don't hear them. No. Uh, and certainly, since I know you're going to go there, uh, uh, Tennessee Williams also. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean... When did, this, when, when did this... What was the first play you read by Tennessee Williams? Chances... Are that it was the Glass Menagerie. I can't really tell you, because even as a kid, I used to love going to the library and taking out plays and reading plays. And I could swear to you that I probably read a lot of the one acts and some of the strange one acts before I even got to the Glass Menagerie. But I, what I what I love about Williams is just uh, not only just the poetic image and sensory experience of it, but he always he always took. The marginalization of people from you know from the crowd this this sense of being other and how you cope with that and how you cope with your sensitivities in a world that often doesn't have time for your sensitivities uh, was something that <clears throat> I identified with uh, that appealed to me uh, and that you know those were the real heroes the people who who try to valiantly make it through their own lives in spite of whatever pains or emotional causes they may have there was something about that that spoke to me i mean even as a child which says weird things about my childhood did you feel marginalized i mean is this a sympathy with those who have been marginalized oh i would say so i would say i definitely think so of course having felt that i was marginalized i wouldn't know <laughs> if i wasn't right yeah. but um 
Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I have always felt a little bit of the oddball, the outsider, as I think uh, certainly virtually all artists do. But I, I, the older I get, the more I think everyone feels that way. Uh, and it's a question of whether or not you're brave enough to admit that. We all feel at some point there's a secret going on that I know nothing about and everyone knows about. Well, isn't it, as someone who I can't remember said, we all want to belong desperately. So admitting that we don't belong or we don't think we belong automatically tactily sets us outside of everything, which makes it off in the room an awful lot colder. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think, I think it's very easy. Well, no, nothing's easy. But, you know, uh, you know, if you're a Boy Scout, or, uh, not getting into the current political... <laughs> yeah, we'll go into that for another, broad, another broadcast. But, you know, if you're talking about Americana or, uh, you know, patriotic things, or you're talking about... Uh, rooting for football or re rooting for things that people talk about at the water cooler, uh, Desperate Housewives, if you, you even want that to become its own sort of jingoistic kind of thing. Um, you know, it's one thing to gravitate to those things that are safe, safe areas, but to go to those places that, you know, you're alone and you don't know if anyone else feels the same way you do. That's, that's a brave and dark and scary territory. It's where you really sort of find out what you're made of. Yeah, that's where a lot of the writing comes from. I mean, it's, it's revealing, as long as we put it in a make-believe fashion, people might not think that we actually feel that way. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Now, ironically, for a lot of my shorter plays, uh, I love going to sort of weird news of the world for inspirations. <laughs> The supermarket checkout stuff, oh, like yes. Bat yes. Boy rises from the ashes and that yeah, sort of thing. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, I gave I gave birth to Bigfoot's baby, etc. Oh, uh, yeah. you know, I I love that kind of stuff. Or on the internet, you'll constantly find offbeat news items. And what's always interesting to me is that these items usually happen in a country that doesn't speak our language. They're always oh, okay. from somewhere else. Right. Which yeah. which I think is interesting. Now, that might be because that way no one can verify them. Or it might be, if they are true items, it might be because of the way other cultures view things. Uh, English is a very linear, syntactically structured language. You do this, and then you do that, and then you do the next thing. Whereas if you look at Russian or you look at other cultures where the syntax can be variable then what came first and what came next becomes, I don't want to say murky, just not as defined. And when you can leave the, the order of things undefined, then it leaves a lot more room for mystery and miracles to come in. True, true. I want to jump back to Tennessee Williams again just for one more, one more thing here. Sure. Your play, The Resurrection of David, after Tennessee, the unseen characters of right. Tennessee Williams, Focuses on three characters, I believe. Uh, was it? Five pieces. Five pieces. Okay. Um, so, what was it about these particular characters that made you want to explore them in the first place, and them as opposed to somebody else? Well, there is a richness 
of detail. I mean, I think Tennessee himself spent so many hours in that shoe warehouse and so many hours in that, that home where things were expected and felt so in his own head that he became interested in the details of others' lives. And what's funny is, uh, the, in After Tennessee, the whole con conceit is there are five short plays, all of which feature characters who are referenced in his major works, but never seen. Uh, for example, in one piece called uh, Ancestors of Telemarketing, uh, we run into two women who are having a conversation on the phone. It turns out they've both been awakened early in the morning by Amanda Wingfield's uh, calling them to try to sell uh, the mag her magazine. I remember this piece, yeah. And it just amused me to think, first off, you know, what, are, what is the response? I mean, those monologues are so brilliantly written by, by Williams, and they're a, gold, they're a gold mine for uh, an actress to play. Mm -hmm. But it was just an amusing thought to me of, hmm, what was it like to be on the receiving end of that? And I thought, well, these women, you know, Amanda was sort of ostracized. She was a member of the GAR, but, you know, she thought of, you could tell that she was the one at the meeting that everyone else would go to the other side of the punch bowl mm -hmm. to try to <laughs> avoid a little bit. And so I thought, what would be the response of these women? And then the funny thing is, it starts out initially with their squawking about Amanda, but gradually you find out that their takes on her are a bit different one from the other. And after a while, you realize that these women have their own Tennessee Williams-like lives and disappointments, and that some of their reaction to Amanda is to make themselves feel better about their own lives and the things that maybe are pathetic or sad or uncomfortable. So ultimately you find out a lot more about them through their commentary uh, on Amanda and gradually you find out what their relationship is. So in a sense we've still got marginalized characters who are trying to find their superpowers in a way by trying to consciously or subconsciously work themselves through each and every day in life. Absolutely. Uh, in another piece called that's part of the uh, the umbrella uh, there's uh, a piece called The Last Straw. Uh, and not many people remember this, but in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, Maggie and Brick are in one of the big, what used to be the master bedroom that was lived in by the two pl original plantation owners, uh, Straw and Ocello. And they were two gay men at the turn of the century who were so wealthy and so powerful and ran the biggest uh, cotton plantation in the area that no one dared, you know, comment or say anything about their sexuality. And in point of fact, they were the ones who hired a young foreman who later on becomes Big Daddy. And so they talk about Big Daddy before he's Big Daddy. And you see some of the things that are passed down to Big Daddy, who is a surrogate son. You sort of look at some of the themes that would infiltrate the wallpaper that then, uh, you know, surrounds Maggie and Brick's confrontation. This must have been a lot of fun to write. Oh, it was great fun to write because first you had just the joy and the humor of not satirizing but but poking around in Tennessee's, you know, leftovers. I mean, obviously he thought about these characters a little bit in order to make them instigate, you know, other things to ha happening. But to actually go through and see, oh, who are these about? What are these people about? Uh, what were their lives like? What, you know, what begets what? Uh, it becomes great fun. Uh, perhaps the trickiest piece of the, of the uh, evening is called uh, Think Objects in the Mirror Are Closer Than They Appear. And it takes place on a lonely road one night. 
uh, as a trucker is driving a ship supposedly of bananas, but there may be something else. Mm -hmm. And he turns out to be Rosaria De La Rosa, the husband of Serafina in Rose Tattoo. Ironically, he picks up a hitchhike hitchhiker who has to get back to uh, Belle Reve because his new bride Blanche is is waiting for him to take her dancing and uh, that of course is Alan Gray who is the young man who ends up uh, killing himself and thereby uh, sort of traumatizing uh, Blanche Dubois and leading to her uh, yeah, her, her breakdown. right yeah. but what's interesting is both men are attached to women who are so into signs and symbols and are so fearful of life and despite their own reservations they have to be the strength to uh, to help these women and yet they have their own doubts about their own masculinity their own sense of self and so just to have them end up reading uh, you know meeting each other as a hitchhiker and a driver on a rainy night uh, again you have a wonderful wealth of of uh, William's background and you see well who are these recipients of these worlds and what would they talk about if they were put together and so so it's a great fun it is a fun piece I I remember doing part of it and I remember listening to the rest of it wasn't it just done with uh, Blue Roses uh, production Blue Roses did uh, The Last Straw uh, uh, as part of their 100th celebration uh, birthday celebration for uh, Tennessee Williams. Tell us about Blue Roses. Blue Roses is a wonderful company, more or less based in New York, but it sort of has a national constituency. Uh, it was founded by Irma DeRico and Tim Brown. And it's a company that both nurtures the work of Tennessee Williams and the aesthetic of Tennessee Williams, and within that encourages other new playwrights and actors to explore things that are tangential to those concerns. Uh, the work is very emotional, sensual, uh, imagistic, and uh, sort of carries on the tradition of Williams. For example, they did a they did an evening uh, a couple seasons ago called Tom's Children, where members of the com- members writers of of the company uh, took different Tennessee Williams poems and used those as inspirations for original plays uh, nice. about yeah. different themes. So it's it's both about new work and yet celebrating the um, celebrating the sensitivity and the worldview of Williams through through the work. And we just did a uh, every year we do a few infusion series where we present readings of new works for the for the general public. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just uh, are in the process of completing the winter series right now. We did uh, an evening of Alaskan writers. We did an evening of plays about. Uh, people who are marginalized, uh, the aged, the... Uh... We never seem to write plays about people who are well-adjusted and found their place in life. Are there any? No. Well, that's why. <laughs> uh, so, And uh, coming up, they're doing actually an interesting play this coming Tuesday. I don't know when this is broadcast, but they're doing a play called Kennedy V, or Kennedy Five. Mm. That's going to be about looking at what happened after the Kennedy assassination and looking at how Teddy, who is always the least... Um, least of the brothers? Yes. I mean, for, you know... For limelight reasons, I would guess, yes. Who then had to rise to the occasion to ultimately have the longest run right. 
of the brothers who really held not only the family but a lot of uh, a lot of the things the Kennedys believed in together, and in some ways, many people would say held a nation together. I want to switch uh, tacks here just for a minute. You teach, um, what? And you've been teaching theater for a while. Obviously, it's a great level. I mean, what do you see is the main obstacle that I mean that you and other teachers face as as instructors of the dramatic arts? If I can just broaden that a little bit, I think it even goes beyond the arts. There has become such a centralization. People are still suffering their own little private hells, if you will. And I think people need to understand that by actually being willing to look at what it is that's troubling them and to open that up and to hone it in such a way that other people can understand it and recognize it and and be in sync and join them in the appreciation of it. I think that's something that has really disappeared because we don't have enough arts education, because we don't have enough teaching of logic. We don't have uh, you know, enough people learning how to listen. Right now, everything is, give me an answer. Give me an answer. Put it out there. Okay, next question. Supplying, supplying simple facts and plugging in facts isn't enough. If we're going to survive as a people, we need to be able to to do it with sympathy and sensitivity. I mean, it's very interesting. I will ask my students, how often do you talk to see, talk to people in person? How often do you talk to them on the phone? How often do you text? And the majority of attention now is going to texting. And then I ask them, okay, how many of you have gotten into fights with people because your text has been misinterpreted? And everyone raises their hand. Well, the simple fact is the way we communicate is not just the few spare words. It's what the words mean, the coloration, the intuition. Uh, intention. The intention. And I feel that that's something that is disappearing. Such that as we create more and more ways to communicate technologically, we're communicating less and less successfully on a per interpersonal level. So for me, teaching, be it uh, arts teaching or even being the English teaching that I'm doing now, uh, my big bailiwick is, um, is having students find their voice and really own what's going on with them. And also letting, teaching them how to really take in what's coming from, uh, from, their, from their peers. Because the only way that we're going to solve our way through the gun crisis, through terrorism, through uh, you know any one of these, the fiscal cliff, the only way this is going to happen is if we are actually listening and finding the commonalities. Right now, it seems like people get awards for being, you know, my way or the highway. You know, I've got the answer, and very little, very little. Credence is given to creativity and exploration, and I think we've got to we've got to stimulate the creativity uh, gene again. That's what seems to have disappeared. Well, I mean, creativity uh, is intrinsic to not having a solution. You can't you don't create something unless you need to, unless there's a question. If you put solid answers in front of everybody, my way or the highway, right. this is the way it is, love it or leave it. There leaves no room for speculation, for wonder, for 
the natural curiosity that we should have every day, every second of our lives. It, it's stifling. You, theater and the arts cannot exist in a society that only serves to have you know, pat answers and you know icons. Well, it's very true. I mean, we might as well then, in fact, turn everything over to the computers to uh, to run, because then you're not then you're not using judgment, you're not using creativity, you're not inventing. It's all mechanical, and it's, it's not it's not human. It's not life. No, it's not. And life is is well, we could go what, on forever with that. And that's you know, and that's uh, I think what we're here for. So I don't think we should be uh, I don't think we should be squandering it. I think we need to. Uh, to open it up so should we find out you know what's going on what advice would you give uh, new playwrights I mean either in the furthering of their craft abilities or in matters of self-representation I ask because you're experienced and you've got a heck of a resume there and you've been around the horn a couple of times don't censor be willing to brainstorm be willing to try wild crazy out there ideas I mean, brave new world yeah, it is in a sense because look, for years everyone said, "Oh, the theater is dying. Oh, the theater doesn't allow this. The theater doesn't allow that. The TV's wiping it out. Uh, movies are wiping it out." Well, kitchen sink realism, perhaps, and the mundane is being covered by a camera literally being on you. But that frees you to go into all sorts of realms of the imaginary, that you know, uh, conventional entertainment forms, mass-produced entertainment forms don't allow for and so you can really stretch and grow the other thing though i would say is go out and see things go out and try to put on things if you're writing get a bunch of friends together and put something out there see what makes it tick do you have to explain it or can you make the words and the actions of the of the characters do it one of the things that i find with new writers is they've gotten so used to the camera moving things for them that they don't realize that there are other means that actually can be more fun and more creative that can accomplish leading an audience somewhere, that can lead the reader or the listener somewhere uh, by through the physical, through the imaginary. Uh, you know, any play is 50% the literal words are there and 50% the imagination of the artist and the audience dreaming together. Nice. All right, we've got about uh, 30 seconds left on this. Um, quickly, you got anything coming up? Well, uh, I have a model coming up in that uh, book right. you mentioned. Uh, I also have a play called Change of Venue uh, coming up uh, this summer, uh, published by in the Best American Short Plays of 2011-2012, published by Applause. Uh, and uh, in Middleborough, uh, Theatre One Productions is doing a new play of mine called Life Gives You Lemons uh, as part of an evening, uh, their Slice of Life Festival. And Middleborough where? Middleborough, Massachusetts. Ah, okay. Uh, and that's coming up in March. Excellent. It's been an absolute thrill and a pleasure to have you on the program, and we'll have you back at some point in the future because I know you're just going to be busting with brand new stuff to bring us uh, this has been uh, George Sapio speaking with Judd Lear Silverman on On Stage, Off Stage, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks, Judd. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that's great. A uh, new play coming up. T tell us about Change of Venue. 
change of venue is based on a true news item supposedly out of Texas about a man who went to a bordello to blow off steam as uh, <clears throat> one is wont to do yes yes steam right steam and uh, you know the economy being, being what it is uh, everyone has to do what they have to do to earn a living and he is startled to find out that the uh, <clears throat> uh, lady about to uh, take care of him is his wife Ooh. And, uh, which, you know, neither knew that the other one were, were doing these particular activities. And it ends up being a very strange, interesting play about, um, about communication <laughs> and about the value and, and what we, when we get locked into our roles within a given relationship, do we sometimes overlook uh, the other things that would give us a healthier relationship that we have to go elsewhere? in order to uh to get the fulfillment we need uh you know is, is any one person to blame or do we do we segregate parts of ourselves from our partners in ways that are uh injuries to the relationship that sounds brilliant i love the idea already i can't wait to read this <laughs>